Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The official portraits of President Barack Obama and Mrs. Michelle Obama that permanently hang in the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery have been traveling across the United States. The High Museum is the exclusive Southeast venue showcasing the works in a special exhibition on view through March 13th. Artist Amy Sherald painted the iconic portrait of First Lady Michelle Obama. Ms. Sherald is a graduate of Clark Atlanta University, and she has other meaningful Atlanta ties. Amy Sherrill joins us now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights. Hi, thank you. Good to be back. We last spoke in 2018 when you were in Atlanta to receive the High Museum's David Driscoll Prize. And that was not long after the unveiling of your portrait of Mrs. Obama. For someone who has not seen an image of the painting, how would you describe the appearance of Michelle Obama's portrait? I would describe it as a representation of her that you might not have seen before. Because when I created this portrait, I wanted it to feel intimate and different from the representation that you see of her in media and in the public eye. I think that's the special power of portraiture and especially painting is that kind of synergy that happens between the painter and the model and the ability of the painter to be able to relay that on canvas using a brush. Mm -hmm. And the first lady is wearing this gorgeous gown that has geometric patterns. Would you speak about the significance of the dress and its pattern. So I worked with Meredith Coop, who is um, Mrs. Obama's stylist. And, you know, we talked about how she wanted to look in this painting, you know, and we decided that we wanted something more casual. And we started with 11 dresses and narrowed it down to two. One of them had a floral print on it. And the other one was the one that you see now in the museum. And I decided to use that one because, you know, while I was photographing her, I started to think about the fact that I I wanted the dress to also be just important as the figure and something that could stand alone by itself in representing something. And immediately when I had seen it the first time, I thought of the G's Bend quilters in G's Bend, Alabama, because those patterns were very familiar to me because of that. But they were also familiar to me because of um, studying European art history at Spelman College with uh, Dr. Arturo Lindsay. So it was a way to, one, connect her to the Black American narrative without being didactic and um, ground her in that history, but then also it was a nod to European painting. Those same shapes were also seen in the work of Piet Mondrian, for example. And because they were these flat shapes, I, I was able to play around with the dimension of the dress and the way that I cropped it 
with it flowing off of the canvas, I think was something that I did so that it would feel like she was sitting on top of a mountain, like kind of create this, this pyramid of sorts, a pinnacle. And she's surrounded by this blue color that creates space around her and, and air. So it, there's movement in the painting. What a wonderful description. The director of the National Portrait Gallery, Kim Sajet, remarked on the power of portraiture to encourage both empathy and inspiration across audiences. Were those themes in mind when you created your portrait of Mrs. Obama? They were, absolutely. And every day and every painting that I make, I think, you know, I don't take for granted that being a Black woman who is an American painter and also a figurative painter, that every painting that I make is making up for lost time. You know, if you think about art history, starting back with cave paintings, and then you realize that the first exhibition for African-American artists happened in the 1930s and 40s, then you can understand and put the this portrait in context in a deeper context of like what the figure represents within our history because there's been an absence of that narrative for centuries. So I absolutely did think about that. And I received, you know, cards from high school students, from elementary school students, from all over the United States in anticipation of seeing the work, expressing their interests and their delight in seeing someone that looked like me, that was a painter, that was painting a painting of someone who looked like them. And I think representation is, is really important. I think it's something that I think you can take for granted if your image is the one that's constantly being perpetuated. Hmm. Amy, if you don't mind taking a step back, will you explain how you were chosen to paint the First Lady's portrait? Sure. It starts with the director of the National Portrait Gallery, Kim, who you just mentioned. They meet with the first lady and president, and they basically give them a folder of artists that they can choose from. And this was shortly after I had won the Outwin Butcher portrait competition. And out of however many they got, I'm not sure how many, but they shortlisted five. And then we got the call, which was really exciting. And, you know, you have the opportunity to go to the White House and speak with them in the Oval Office, which was the most special day of my life. Uh, I have goosebumps <laughs> just hearing you say that. I can imagine. Yeah, it meant a lot. It meant a lot to be in the Oval Office, but it also meant a lot to be in the Oval Office with the first Black president. And so, you know, we sat down and we spoke and I had a, an instant connection with Michelle, to be honest. I had only thought about painting her. And although President Obama did ask me a few questions about how I would paint him, I think it was it was already, you know, unspoken that if I was the one to be chosen, that I would be chosen to paint Michelle. And um, I found out two months later that I got the commission. I'm wondering about communication between you and Kehinda Wiley, the artist who painted President Obama's portrait. Did you talk about how each of you were approaching your subjects? No, we didn't. The first time I met Kahinde, so we, we both found out that we were chosen, but you know, we had to keep it a secret for almost two years. Wow. There's an art fair in New York called the Armory Show, and I attend every year, and uh, I just happened to see him as I was leaving. And so, you know, I quickly walked up to him and introduced myself, and I was like, you know, hi, I'm Amy. Like, I was chosen to paint Michelle, you know? <laughs> And, and that was it. I didn't see him again until the day of the unveiling. And so I think I had thought about reaching out to him to see what he was going to do, but I don't normally do that in my practice in, in creating things. So I didn't want to bring any extra pressure or element to what I was thinking. I just, you know, trusted my gut and went with what I wanted to do. And I think they both ended up around the same size, which was interesting. Like I was actually trying to make hers bigger, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to What's the word I'm looking for? Um, Hogging the limelight? Yeah. I don't, <laughs> not that I could, you know, but, you know, that those kind of things like make it fun for me. But they, yeah, we, we didn't talk. Now we're, we're great friends. We speak all the time, you know, but it, it was fun. It was fun. I grabbed his hand. We walked on stage and I think we're both just really excited to be there living in the moment. 
Oh, what a great story. And speaking of friends, last time we spoke when you were at WABE Studios, you confirmed expectations that Michelle Obama is as wonderful personally as she seems in public. Have you remained friends or did you develop a friendship? Yes, we did. We have remained friends, developed our friendship. She's been amazing in offering me great advice in certain aspects of my life. She is a wonderful person and I feel lucky to have her in my, you know, in my atmosphere. Oh, I can imagine. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with the artist Amy Sherald. Her portrait of former First Lady Michelle Obama is on view now at the High Museum. Amy, would you speak about your use of a style known by the French word grisaille, which is shades of gray and taupe you have applied to skin tones in some of your portraits? Yes, let's see. The beginning of that would take me back to almost like 2008 or 2009. And I was in the process of just figuring out, you know, what my voice was after coming out of grad school. And I spent a year, you know, making a whole lot of paintings that just actually suck. They just weren't great. But you have to fail a lot in order to, you know, find what it is that you do when you're an artist. So it was a way that I started to work, but in the beginning, I would, you know, once I finished painting the complexion in gray or the model in gray or rendering it in that grisaille tone, I would come back with washes of brown. And I think I was like one or two paintings in trying to figure it out. And I realized that first off, like I really just loved the aesthetic of it. I loved the way that the canvas, the colors were very bright and this, this gray skin just really, I don't know, I just thought it looked great. You know, I think that's what most artists, when they're creating, like they're thinking about like what looks good and not exactly what things mean at the moment. And then eventually I realized that in hindsight, I was trying to search for a way to represent these black figures that I paint in a way that the conversation around the work wouldn't be marginalized. I wanted these portraits to exist in our history in a way that was universal. And I think it just offers the viewer an opportunity to approach the canvas and maybe start the conversation in a different way. It's definitely not about erasing race because no matter whether these figures are painted in gray or brown, we still read each other's faces phenotypically. So we look at our noses, our lips, our eyes, and you can say like, oh, European or African-American or, uh, Chinese or whatever. So we, there's, there's no way to erase that, but it was a way to, to start the conversation differently. And then, you know, over time, I started to connect my desire to use that skin tone with, you know, the possibility of like just growing up and, and spending time looking at pictures of, you know, the very few pictures that my mother had of her mother, of her father, of his mother, and you know, those photographs are in black and white and there's something about them that modern day photography, it just doesn't capture the human spirit. Not saying that it can't, but I think that it doesn't always capture the human spirit in the same way that you see images of people in daguerreotypes and in photography back in the 19th century and this very dignified way that we were able to finally represent ourselves after the invention of the camera. And, and what that meant for us in, in creating our own narrative and storytelling and legacy. Hmm. You recently painted a stunning portrait of Breonna Taylor, the young African-American woman who was fatally shot by police in 2020. And that first appeared on the cover of Vanity Fair. Last year, I spoke with Jasmine Elder an Atlanta fashion designer who created the gown Brianna Taylor wears in the painting. What was it like collaborating with Jasmine for that project? It was amazing because we were both automatically on the same page. 
when it came to representing her, you know, I had not met Jasmine before. And when I reached out to her, I didn't tell her exactly what was happening. I just said, you know, cover of Vanity Fair, a model, can you do this? And, and then uh, we had a phone call and I told her, you know, what it was. And she was like, absolutely. And I think we both agreed that it was a, a moment for us to, to participate in this moment and to create something that could become a cultural icon and exist in a way that it represented what happened that year and what everyone was going through in that moment in, in 2020. And it, so it was wonderful to collaborate with her. Um, she's a wonderful woman. Mm. And did you have response from Ms. Taylor's family? Yes, Ms. Palmer loved the painting, which made me very happy. I spoke to her a little bit while creating it, but I didn't want her to feel like, I didn't want to feel like I was giving her homework, you know, like just because, so I'm making this painting of Brianna, like, you know, can you send me 60 images and like, you know, all these kinds of things. Because it's one thing that I was thinking about when I was approaching it was that I, I was trying not to use any of the images that, you know, you had seen multiple times on Instagram or, or you know, in different like news outlets and, and things like that. So she did send me a few images and then, you know, I had a, a quick conversation with her over text just about her personality. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that she did say was that Brianna loved to dress up. Mm-hmm. Like she was a diva in the best sense of the word, you know, like <laughs> nails done and hair done and eyelashes done. And so that gave me a, a, a great place to start. And I found a model years ago that I've painted already that I called again because she was the same height and had the same physical attributes as Brianna and um, photographed her for that. And then I, I wasn't able to pull any different images, but I was able to create something that was different from what everybody had seen before. And I think, you know, her mother said like it was a way that the end product was something that Brianna would have been proud of and would have loved to see herself existing in that way. And again, I just wanted to breathe life back into her so that we're left with something that is inspiring and hopeful because that's the kind of person that she was when she walked into the room. And that's what she would want us to, to get back from that portrait from what her mother said. Is it possible to describe how your life has changed since the unveiling of Michelle Obama's portrait? Yeah, you know, it went from very busy because I, I think within a couple of years before being chosen, my career had picked up in many different ways. And, you know, people were buying the work, excited about the work. I had a waiting list for the work. And what happened was that, and I find this to be a, a wonderful thing, is that it allowed what I do to cross over into the public realm, right? So, people who normally wouldn't, let's say, go to a museum to see work or know that much about art in general because it is its own ecosystem and it can feel exclusive. They had the opportunity to engage in something that they connected with. And because of that, you know, teachers use the opportunity to like create projects around the portraits and teach portraiture through the paintings. And so becoming a part of the educational system and educational curriculum to me is something that, that was probably the most amazing thing that happened. I think it's how I imagine my work being employed in the world. Like it can be employed in many different ways. And that was one way that I, I you know, I think it's really important that children get to see themselves and see work and then make work about that. So, you know, there's kids in Portland, Oregon, like it didn't matter the color of the child, but they they were able to learn about art and about me and understand you get to know a person's humanity through through images. And, you know, sometimes that may be the only way that you're able to experience a culture or a person that's different from you. Um, and so that was the biggest way that it that it changed. I can imagine. I mentioned your ties to our city as a Clark Atlanta University graduate for your bachelor's work. You were a Spelman College international artist in residence, and you were awarded the High Museum's David Driscoll Prize. 
Amy, I read that a childhood visit to the art museum in your hometown of Columbus, Georgia, was transformative for you. How does it feel to have your portrait of Michelle Obama hanging in the High Museum in Atlanta? You know what, it feels amazing because while living in Atlanta, there were so many times that, you know, you when you're a young artist and you're imagining your future, like you you go into the museum and you're like, one day my work's gonna be there. And I've had that that full circle moment in many different ways. And and this is one of them. So I think it's it's wonderful for the work to be there. My family, especially my mother's side of the family, they live in Mobile and weren't able to come to the unveiling. So they're very excited to be able to drive to Atlanta to see it. And unfortunately, you know, because of Omicron, I, I couldn't come down, but um, hopefully before the show ends, I'll be able to make a trip down there. But, you know, just to give them the opportunity to like take a picture in front of it <laughs> with their cousin who painted it, you know. It, it feels good. It does. It does feel good. And the High Museum is one of my favorite museums. So I'm glad that they were a part of the tour. Oh. In the speech after the unveiling, Mrs. Obama said that she would like posterity, young Black girls especially, to see her through your vision as a herald of success, she said. Amy Sherald, congratulations on your success and the way in which your art furthers our understanding of one another. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Artist Amy Sherald. Her portrait of former First Lady Michelle Obama is on view now at the High Museum through March 13th. More information is on our website, wabe.org City Lights. Moments ago, Amy Sherald and I briefly discussed her connection to Atlanta fashion designer Jasmine Elder. When Sherald was asked to paint a portrait of the late Brianna Taylor, she chose Elder to design a dress Taylor would have loved. The portrait appeared on the cover of Vanity Fair in September of 2020. When the designer joined me via Zoom last year, she began by explaining the history of her fashion line, Jabri. I've always been a crafty person. I've been making my own clothes since I was about 12 or 13 years old. And when I got to high school, I, I met a friend who introduced me to a established designer by the name of Jabri Mann. He had a boutique over in Little Five Points called Funky Town. And he kind of transformed my thought process on how to create garments. And he taught me, you know, just the fundamentals on it. And when I, he got me to New York, basically for college, it was his recommendation that I go there just to expand my, my mind. And um, I moved to New York, he passed away. I, I didn't even know I would ever have a line, but if I did, it would be named after him. So many years later, after, and I had been making my clothes all throughout college and early adulthood, someone asked, hey, where'd you get that? Where do you get your clothes? And people just started to ask me that all the time. So I decided, well, maybe I should try to sell them. And um, Etsy, which is like a marketplace, I'm sure you know Etsy, like a hand, handmade marketplace. Etsy was around around that time. So I tried a little shop on there and just sold one or two pieces. And it grew into a line for plus size women. Wow. Why was it especially important for you to create a fashion line for plus size women? Well, again, I was my own first client. I've been plus size my entire, probably midway through teenage years and my entire adult life. So I needed clothes to wear for myself. And I mean, the plus size market is very different now, but 15, 20 years ago, I really didn't have a lot of options that match my personality or my moods. So I was my own client. It made sense for it to be for women of um, a certain size. So at that time, I was just doing from like a size 14 to like a 22 or 24. And I've expanded a little bit now. So I go from a 10 to a 28. Yeah. That's good. And, and you celebrate 
the curvy figure. I like the way that's put. Yeah. Uh, what, what did plus-size fashion lack that Jabri fills in? A glamour, I would think. I was, I've always been a lover of fashion beyond size. So old movies and, you know, wardrobing for black and white films that my mom used to watch. I love the shape, the, creates, the creation of breast, waist, hips, the hourglass figure, even on a thinner model, a thinner woman. It was always that accent, which is a part of what I create now. And they just, that just wasn't there. So most of the plus size clothing around the time that I began buying my own clothes, it, there was no, no silhouette to it really, in my opinion, or the, the silhouette wasn't one that I was comfortable with at 21 years old, maybe. Mm-hmm. So, so I added just glamour, like the things that I saw in New York, the things I saw women wearing every day that weren't my, they were smaller than me, but it just matched my lifestyle a little bit better. So I just wanted to give that glamour to plus women as well. That glamour, that greater range of design is really important to enriching our understanding of celebrating all body types. I mean, Hollywood has not made great strides, though there are baby steps we're seeing toward different types of bodies appearing. Not all of the women look emaciated. If you could work with any celebrity, I I ask this because you've worked with some impressive ones so far. Jill Scott especially jumped out at me. I love her. If you could work with any other celebrities who you haven't collaborated with so far, who would that be? Well, I have worked with this person before, but I would kind of want to do over Lizzo. I did some a piece for her for, I think it was Bus Magazine a few years ago, but it was before she, you know, was introduced to the world really. And I didn't know her personality yet. And I would love to take, because I, I love costumes as well. So it wouldn't necessarily be a part of the regular breed line, but it would have, it would give me a chance to play around with some stage costumes. So I would say Lizzo. I, I would like that would just be like a super fun project for me. Yeah, yeah. the famous portrait, Amy Sherald's painting of Brianna Taylor that appeared on the cover of Vanity Fair. How did the collaboration between you? and the artists come about? It was super organic. It seems organic. I I guess I'll just tell you how it happened. When Amy got the commission, I guess, from Vanity Fair, she made a decision on wanting to work with a Black designer and also a designer that would have created something that Brianna could have worn in life. So she didn't want to just choose a dress, any old dress. She wanted it to be something she could actually fit. And when she started looking around for designers, just in a plus size Google search, basically, I was like one of the two or three that she found in her search. I mean, I think she found a lot, a long list, but I must have been up there in the top ones that she found. So she sent an email as herself and just said, hey, would you be interested in a Vanity Fair cover? I'm like, uh, yeah. I didn't know what it was for. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it, was, it was really easy. It wasn't. I do projects all the time that are far less um, exciting as that one and are way more work, way more, uh, you know, little details. It was really easy to work with her and and, an honor to work with her. I read that it was important to Amy that the designer be of African-American heritage. She thought this is something historic. This is appropriate. And your line, Chabri, came up high on that list. Would you describe the dress Brianna Taylor's wearing for those who may not have seen the painting or the magazine cover? Sure. The color, actually, Amy kind of altered the color a little bit. The, uh, the dress I actually made was a little bit greener. It's a silk crepe dress, a bat wing, it has a V-neck, it's flowy, it has lots of life, lots of movement in it. 
Um, it did have like a couple of splits on the on the front panels that we actually widened <laughs> for Brianna's age. Just something that would have been something a, a 26 year old woman would have been comfortable wearing. So it's it's a fun, vibrant piece, vibrant colors, flowy, and it just accented her skin tone beautifully and her, and her spirit. Amy Cheryl said she she was channeling Brianna to tell her what color. Yeah. You should make the dress, and somehow blue came about, and Brianna's birthstone, her birthday would have been in March, was aquamarine. Right. Yeah, she told me that. Cause she did. We played around with white. So we played with um, orange, and the colors that were in that bluish-green color, color fields, were the ones she was most attracted to for the piece. In the Vanity Fair profile of Amy Sherald, she says that she wanted Brianna's family to look at this and say, I can see my daughter and sister wearing this. How did that make you feel? It was a bittersweet feeling. Of course, I was very touch to be a part of it and I work with women every day who are connecting to their garments in a particular way. I definitely wanted it to be something that a, a younger woman would be more comfortable in. I, I wanted it to be something that her mom would love and her fiance would love because I knew for this painting it was going to be like her forever dress. By adding the engagement ring to her hand in the painting, the engagement ring her fiancé never got to give her. Amy Sherald said she felt she was providing a future for Brianna Taylor. Do you have a similar sense having created this dress? I do. Like, overall, after I saw the work finished, and even knowing what I was creating when I was making the dress, I knew it was going to be, like I said, this forever moment for her family and for the world. I didn't know that it would be in the, you know, the Smithsonian or anything like that, but I wanted it to be like, it's just a step up. Cause you know, when you're 26, you're still wearing, you know, party clothes or whatever. I know this wouldn't be her everyday look. It would be like a special moment dress if she was going somewhere, you know, maybe somewhere fancy just in her in her age range. So when she added the ring, it kind of put like a different story. Like, was this her engagement party? Where was she going? Where, you know, but this was a, a moment that she would have wanted to to capture. And so ah. I think that Amy Amy did a beautiful job in doing that. How do you feel about your garment being on display in the esteemed National Museum of African American History and Culture? I'm super honored. I'm, I'm honored to have even been a part of the project at all. I felt helpless as an outsider when I heard about this case, just as a regular person. So, of course, when I was invited to participate in the project at all, I was it was like my moment to get to speak to it, my moment to, to help do something about it in my own way. So to just be a part of like her moment, her final appearance to the world in this painting is something that it touches my, my heart forever. I'll always be honored. Atlanta fashion designer Jasmine Elder from our conversation last year. More information about her clothing line, Shabri, can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll continue this thread of fashion and listen back to a clip of Sisters, actor Brian Jordan Jr. sharing his quest to find great clothes for plus-sized men. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. 
And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. On Tyler Perry's hit TV series, Sisters, Actor Brian Jordan Jr. plays the hilarious character Maurice Webb. In real life, however, the actor finds no humor in the challenges plus-sized men like himself experience when looking for great fashion. When the actor joined me via Zoom back in 2020, we spoke about how men of his size are accommodated in the fashion industry. You know, I, I wish that I could tell you how we were accommodated, but I don't believe that we are. There is not a atelier or higher end fashion brand that caters to larger men. Um, and we're starting to see it with, you know, the, you know, the more um, ready to wear lifestyle daily brands like Zara and ASOS, those online companies. But I am a person who has always been a lover of fashion and very passionate about it. In my opinion, I feel that even, even larger women get more of a, and I, and, I, and I understand the buying power of women. And I understand how, you know, in fashion, women really, really have a heavier margin when it comes to the purchasing. But I do feel that it, when, I, when it's time for me to go to the red carpet, or time for me to be, you know, get things. It takes a lot of effort. And I have, you know, every other guy on the show, we're very close friends. And every other guy on the show, you know, they're in great shape and it's no problem for them at all. And people are always like, Brian, you look so great. And they don't even understand what I have to go through. I style myself. Um, and it is probably the most challenging part about being, you know, in the public eye and being, a, you know, a figure of influence um, because I'm on a television show. It is something that is very difficult. And so what I'm doing right now is developing pieces and things that I like. And, you know, I have always had a dream of having my own fashion line, but I did not think that it would be catered to a certain genre of man. But that's what I'm focusing on first. I think that there needs to be something that is high quality that feels great, that looks great on men of all sizes. And I'm not just talking about men who are big and tall because we got the big and tall, but I don't, I can't fit big and tall. Big and tall is too big for me. I'm in a place where I'm not big and tall. Like I can't wear that, but I also barely can wear the regular sizes. So I just want things that are comfortable for men who are not huge, you know, like six, six, you know what I mean? But men who are also not 160 pounds. So I'm very passionate about developing um, a product that will serve every man. And allow you to feel elegant, stylish. Right. I, oh, I think this is just wonderful. How far along are you in creating your own clothing line? I'm really taking my time with it because I'm working on so many things, but I, I've had things designed for myself. I've developed a tuxedo and it's a tuxedo with shorts. I call it the short cedo. <laughs> <laughs> and I've developed this, um, it's like a silk satin set that looks like pajamas, but it's really like a suit, like the pants are very well tailored. And, you know, it, 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 it's something that, like I have very large legs and, you know, but my waist isn't as large as my legs. And so, you know, a lot of football players, I played football, you know, a long time going up through high school and college. And we have a certain build that, would and I still have that football build and when it comes to like a lineman or a linebacker or you know someone who is larger they always have to get their suits made and and so I want to be able to serve men like that men like me who may have to like like I buy suits all the time and I have to buy a large size to get it taken in to where it can also fit my shoulders and my arms and my waist and my chest like it's so many different things and I just want things to be able to cater to men without them spending thousands of dollars just to wear a suit. 
actor Brian Jordan Jr., who plays the hilarious character Maurice Webb on Tyler Perry's hit TV show, Sisters. The comedy drama is in its fourth season on the BET Network. You can hear my entire interview with Brian Jordan Jr. on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. In a moment, we'll hear about Aurora Theater's new production of Feeding Beatrice, amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. It's City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Jordan Peele's Get Out meets Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho in a new production at Aurora Theater. Feeding Beatrice opens this week. Joining me now via Zoom to talk more about this gothic tale are director David Cote and actor Christopher Hampton, who plays the role of Laurie. Welcome to City Lights. Well, thank you. Thank you, thank you for having us. David, can you give us a synopsis of the show? It sounds very intriguing. Well, this show is about a couple that buys a house in a predominantly white neighborhood, and they discover a ghost in the house. The ghost haunts them and unearths things about them that they didn't even know. And also things about racism are explored during this production. Hmm. Christopher, would you tell us about your character, Lurie? Lurie is a young married man in a very similar position to uh, myself that is looking to like expand his future and his family. And they have dealt with some setbacks in terms of trying to expand their life and have kind of moved into this new house to bring some new energy into the marriage and turn into a new direction and try to really rebuild and grow his marriage with his wife. Uh, in a very uh, kind of everyman place for a lot of people, I think. We made the comparison to Jordan Peele's Get Out. In fact, this play by Kirsten Greenwich was written 20 years before Get Out. In what ways is Feeding Beatrice similar? Well, both stories explore the horror of, of racism and the effects of racism in America to African-Americans. This play particularly explores the horror of African-Americans chasing the American dream. So it kind of gives you an insight into, you know, the history of the neighborhood, history of of the people that live there and how that past affects the present occupants of this house. How can the genre of horror soften the blow, if you will, of real-life issues, grave issues like racism. I think it make it more digestible because you're able to see it in a genre that allows you to kind of put aside your personal issues and see the horror of the reality of the situation. It actually makes it easier for you to see how terrible it is in this country for people to have to be ostracized or, or treated differently because of their ethnicity or or, or nationality or anything like that. So, I get what you're saying. What struck me in watching Get Out a few times was how much it is a horror story on two different levels. Christopher, you mentioned how Lurie is similar to you in that he's a young man starting out in marriage and career. Are there other situations in the play where you feel you can relate to Lurie's character? Oh, man. I mean, there's a lot. In the vein of the conversation we were having in in regards to uh, the racism, the language and the, the situations that I get put into in this show, that fear of, like, 
of making a wrong move, of a, a step that you take in a wrong direction or something that I say could be perceived in a different way because I'm a black man and my consequence for that could be dire, could be you know the destruction of my family or far more drastic than somebody who doesn't look like me. And those tensions are brought forward in this play. They're not nailed on the head, but that everyone in the room feels that tension and coupling it with the horror aesthetic, it makes it so it's not just the black people in the room that are feeling it, everyone's terrified. And uh, that's one of the unifying things about horror, that it makes everybody feel the same thing and brings us together that way. <laughs> Without giving away spoilers, what kind of compromises do Lurie and his wife, June, have to make in order to assimilate into the community? They make some very interesting decisions that people would not see themselves making. And I kind of give that to the genre and that the playwright's done a really good job of evoking that horror vibe that you get from the movies by <laughs> making these very unique choices and letting everyone react to those kind of strange decisions that people make in horror genre. Is there humor as well? Yes. Oh, yes. It's lots of humor. I think the play, it really takes off because of the humor in it as well. But I think you have to have humor in order to balance the, the production. And the playwright did a wonderful job of, of writing humor in the play to make us relax just for a second. Yeah. So uh, when you jump from being scared and when you are surprised and laugh, they are two sides of the same coin. They're very similar reactions, but they just come from different places. What a great way of describing it. Would you tell us about the set design? Oh, well, the set design is a two-story Gothic house um, that's dominated primarily by the kitchen. The, the, most of the action takes place in the kitchen and in the bathroom. You do have an award-winning scenic design team. Yes, we have the Curly Clays, who are amazing. Yeah, that design really lends itself to, to help us tell the story because the house itself is a character in the play. So you'll see the house doing things that in most plays they wouldn't do. But considering that this is a horror, the house is alive. Oh, my. Lawrenceville is the oldest city in the metro Atlanta area. And we know that Aurora Theater offers a spooky ghost tour there each October. Does this knowledge of Lawrenceville's haunted past in any way add to the thrill of where the show's being performed? Anytime you're in a place where it has a history of of ghosts and a history of being haunted, I think it does add to the mystery. But I think this play would work anywhere because it's kind of universal in its theme and it's an allegory for the effect of racism on, on America. Yeah, it's, There is something too also like being an Atlanta native and one that is raised inside of the perimeter to traveling outside of the perimeter and the difference in culture that you see out there. And I've met lovely people on both sides of 285. But <laughs> there, uh, there is a definite difference in the worlds on uh, either sides of that highway. And there's something to driving up there and knowing that you've entered into that space and then driving back home and knowing you've entered into another space that is very connected to what this show is uh, dealing with, too. I'm very curious to hear from each of you about how audiences will react to this play. You know, I'm sure they will be entertained and enlightened, and we'll definitely be celebrating the wonder and fragility of our human experience. So I think the celebration of the human experience is what's going to unify everybody in watching this production. Hopefully we educate people on the effects of, of racism in America and enlighten them to do something about it, to be that better person, to embrace themselves and other people, regardless of what, what their backgrounds are, and try to take them at face value for who they are and not, you know, what is this, the, the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Yeah. One of my favorite things as a performer is the experience that the audience receives and 
being able to get that live feedback with a live audience and you know a play with that's this funny and has and has so much horror elements into it there's so many surprises and surprising turns and you know unique choices that are I'm fascinated to see how audiences will react. It's one of my favorite parts of being an actor is when those like elements that all come together and produce this beautiful, shocking, terrifying, or hilarious moment. And there's a bunch of them in this play. And I, I really am excited to see that. Director David Cote and actor Christopher Hampton, Aurora Theater's production of Feeding Beatrice is on stage in their new theater in Lawrenceville through February 6th. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., We'll explore the life and legacy of the pioneering Vogue magazine editor André Leontali. He died recently at the age of 73. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E at Left. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.